welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Well, good morning, church. It's a blessing to be with you. Um, We should definitely be praying for those who are not here this morning. Several people were messaging me this morning just saying, we're just, we're not going to make it. We are just so sick. So we could please be praying for one another um, so that the Lord would uh, give those strength, especially the moms and dads who have young kids who are sick as well. I mean, that just, uh, that's a whole nother level of suffering. So just be praying for one another, please. Um, If you would turn to Genesis 16. Genesis 16, and this morning we're going to continue to look into the faith and failures of Abram and his family as they live in the land of promise. Abram has put us to shame sometimes because of his faith in the promises of God. Like when he left his homeland, the Ur of the Chaldeans, and went into this strange foreign (laughs) land of Canaan. Or when he charged into battle against this army of the kings of the east sometimes he's put us to shame through his faith but then other times abram has shocked us with his ability to forget god's promises like when he abandoned his wife to pharaoh in order to save his own skin in egypt i mean that was a bit shocking the author of genesis hasn't pulled any punches abram is accurately recorded as a mixed bag of faith and foolishness faith and failures Genesis reveals that Abram is a sinner. It does not hide that fact. But the good news is that Abram is a sinner who was chosen, called, and declared righteous by a mighty Savior. That is the good news in Abram's life. Abram isn't the hero of his story. God is the hero of his story and every other story. So as we gather around Abram's story again this morning, we should be thinking in the back of our minds, God is faithful, but will Abram believe it? God does keep his promises, but will Abram and his family trust God and wait for God to do what only he can do? God has promised Abram descendants four distinct times, but Abram remains childless. This is where we're going to meet with him and his family now. For ten years, Abram has waited on the Lord to fulfill this promise of children, but Sarai remains barren. With this in mind, let's read Genesis 16, and we're just going to go through verses 1 through 6 right now. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And when he went into Hagar, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you, with, between you and me. 
But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she, Hagar, fled from her, from Sarai. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding and even joy as we look at this broken story in the book of Genesis. What brokenness we sometimes bring into this world. And Father, I pray as we study this this morning and as we learn about who you are in contrast to who we are, I pray that we would be filled with hope and joy and confidence in you and not in our own goodness. Lord, would our confidence flee from our own goodness? Would that never be where our confidence is? But instead, may our hope and confidence be in the faithfulness of God. I pray you do this for each one here this morning. Amen. This passage is the first time that we hear what's going on in the heart of Sarai. Up until this point, we know that she is present with her husband in the land of Canaan. She's traveling with her with him. But we haven't been told how she is responding to the God who first spoke to her husband in Ur of the Chaldeans. This God who who appeared to her husband. In fact, we have no reason to believe that Sarai ever heard God speak up until this point. The scriptures imply that God's promises were only spoken to Abram and then relayed to Sarai. Sarai is operating without the benefit of visions, dreams, or divine encounters at this point. She is simply following her husband as a nomad in Canaan based on her belief that the God who spoke to her husband is real. And that her husband isn't just crazy, but that God truly has revealed himself to her husband. This is what she is operating on. We know that this type of faith is more difficult. It just simply is. Remember what doubting Thomas said when told that Jesus had risen from the grave, had risen from the dead. Thomas said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, unless I see this and do this and touch and feel, unless that happens, I will never believe. That's what Thomas said. And this reveals that we, are, we humans are made of flesh and blood and we struggle to place our hope and our confidence in things we cannot see, touch, or hear. That's why Jesus, when he appeared to Thomas, says this, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Happy in God, blessed by God are you if you do not see yet believe. Sarah had not seen or heard God, but miraculously, she does believe in the God who appeared to her husband and declared the promises. Notice how she says in verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She doesn't use a generic name for a God or the gods. Instead, she acknowledges the creator God who gave the promises to her husband. She calls him Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Not only that, but she rightly acknowledges that Yahweh, that he is the all-powerful one who opens and closes the womb. 
We can't know for sure if her statement is made with bitterness toward the Lord, but we do know that her statement is true. The Lord had prevented Sarai from bearing children. Throughout our study in Genesis, we have been confronted by the fact that God is far more involved in our daily life than we assume or even sometimes want to believe. We've seen that God created everything out of nothing in Genesis 1 and that the Son of God, moment by moment, holds everything together by the word of His power. That's Hebrews 1. He's holding everything together by the word of His power. We've seen through the Psalms and in Job that God commands the movements of nature, not just in a miraculous way like when He appeared in a pillar of fire, but also in the daily movements of even the clouds, the rain, in the frost, the snow, the hail, in the hurricane, and in the tornado. Remember, Job 37 told us in verse 11, he says, He, God, Yahweh, the Lord, He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them. On the face of the habitable world, he's talking about the globe, God commands them and they obey. Whether for correction or for His land or for love, He causes it to happen. That's Job 37. We've also struggled through the truth that God is in control of every trial, struggle, and evil that comes upon us, while at the same time being without sin or fault. God is in control, but without fault. We've struggled through this. When mankind rebelled against God and sinned in the garden, it was God who delivered the curse on the earth, and it was God who promised pain, for every human being who had ever lived. And we looked at why he did that. The troubles of this life are not just rotten luck or accidents of nature. No, the trouble and pain of this life is divinely appointed to call humanity to look to the God who owns them and created them for his glory. We struggled through this and we looked at this is true. These are the claims of Scripture. And now we learn through the life of Sarai that God is the one who opens and closes the womb. This is confirmed in Genesis 20 when God closed then opened the wombs of Abimelech's household. And then in 1 Samuel 1 when God closes then opens Hannah's womb. And then the writer of Job and the writers of the Psalms describe God as the one who is intimately involved in the creation of each and every baby. They say, the writers of Scripture say things like this, He, God, made me in the womb. And then Job says, when he's speaking of the poor and servants and slaves and himself, he says, and God fashioned us in the womb. Then David praises God saying, You, the Lord, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God is the creator and sustainer of the womb, and, it is, and God is the designer of every baby. No matter what is going on in your life, as we've seen through these different examples, 
No matter what is going on, God is in control. And this is good news for his followers. Because we, we read and we see in Romans 8.28, as Ruan said this morning, he, we read that we know, because we know that for those who love God, for his people, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He says, he identifies the people twice. He says, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose for them all things work together for good by the power and sovereignty of our God. God is working in the midst of every pain and trouble in order to draw his people into an everlasting relationship where he receives all the glory and we receive all that is good in him. That is his goal. We receive all that is good in him. And in that, he receives all the glory from the praise and the worship of his people for all eternity. And this is true in the life of Sarai, even though she may not fully grasp it. She doesn't have the whole scriptures like we do. And, and she does seem like she's also beginning to doubt even what God has promised to her, what he has revealed. But we know that this is true in the life of Sarai. Sarah has been living in pain. She has. For 60 years, she has suffered under the pain of infertility, social judgment, and feelings of failure and worthlessness. Sarah's culture screamed at her that she was only as valuable as the number of sons that she produced for her husband. And in society's eyes, she was scoring a zero right now. Then... God promises Abram a son. He says, you are going to have descendants. But that was 10 years ago. And Sarai just keeps getting older. Humanly speaking, children begin to look like an impossibility for her. This is what causes Sarai to doubt her role in the promise of God. This is what leads her to look for a human solution to the divine promise. When human faith falters or fails, that's when we begin to look for human solutions to what God has promised to do. Sarah comes to her husband, Abram, and says, Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. To our ears, this sounds shocking. The idea of multiple wives and taking concubines is offensive to us, and so it should be. But in all fairness to Sarah and Abram, they were just following the cultural norm. In their day, polygamy was socially acceptable. And in some instances, it was actually expected if your wife could not bear children. So Sarai's solution to the problem of offspring was socially normal. It was accepted. And in large part, it was expected. It was actually shocking that they had waited this long before turning to this solution. There are even historical documents that record the legality of a matriarch, so think Sarai, the legality of her giving her female slave to her husband, and then whatever offspring came out of that union would legally belong to the matriarch, to Sarai. This seems to be exactly what Sarai is suggesting to Abram. She is saying, maybe through Hagar, 
God's promise to you and me will be fulfilled because Hagar's baby will legally belong to me. That's what she's saying. Though Sarai's suggestion was socially acceptable and maybe even expected, it does not mean that God was pleased by this human solution. In fact, the writer of Genesis uses a play on words to reveal the brokenness of this moment. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. In these verses, we see these words. Abram, listen to the voice of Sarai. Sarai took Hagar, and she gave Hagar to Abram, her husband. Do these words sound familiar at all? I have no doubt that they rang in the ears of the writer because only 13 chapters before he wrote these words. In Genesis chapter 3, he wrote these. Eve took of the fruit and gave some to her husband. And God said to Adam, You have listened to the voice of your wife instead of me. This, mo- this, this truly is a moment of brokenness in the life of Abram and Sarai. Even the writer of Genesis refers back to the very first sin when a husband and a wife chose to follow their own understanding and their own wisdom rather than the voice and command of God. The solution was socially acceptable. Sarah and Abram's I, like concept, what they were doing, was socially acceptable, culturally expected, and it seemingly even protected the dignity of God by helping Him keep His promise. But is God ever pleased when we doubt His ability to keep His word? Is He honored when we attempt to improve on His revealed will and wisdom? No. He is not. You cannot please God and bring joy into your life if you are trusting in the wisdom of this world rather than the wisdom of God. The wisdom of this world brings a snare and destruction. It brings sleepless nights and endless tears. It promises you freedom but puts you in chains. All that opposes God's will is condemned to death already. How could it ever bring you life abundantly? Proverbs 3 verses 5 through 8 counsels us as beloved children saying, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, look to Him, trust in Him, and He will make straight your paths. He will lead you. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. If you've lived in this world for very long at all, you can testify that the heartache of sin and relational distress and emotional pain, it actually brings our body under pain and suffering and many times illness. There's pain in our bones and in our body because of the sin around us in our own lives. And God says that if you will look to me and trust to me, and if you will reject your anxiety and in your doubt, and if you will turn to me in hope and trust, it will actually be healing to even your flesh, and it will be refreshment to your bones. It will sink that deep 
into your life. <laughs> Sarai has a, a suggested a human or a worldly solution that's in opposition to the divine promise, and Abram goes along with the plan. I'm sure it was very difficult for Abram to watch his wife suffer all those years. And I believe Abram loved Sarai and desired to bring her joy and happiness. And his position was a difficult one. I mean, think about it. If he denied her request, then he would become the bad guy. He would become the one now who refused to give her children. So this is where Abram's at. We don't know what was going on in the heart of Abram, but we do know that he failed to lead his family into unwavering faith in the faithfulness and the promises of God. Genesis reveals that Abram is a sinner who doubts, and that Sarai is a sinner who doubts. But we have one more sinner in this story. Hagar is a sinner who despises others. Abram takes Hagar as his second wife, and within, within just a few weeks, Hagar realized she's pregnant. And with that knowledge, and with the knowledge that there was nothing wrong with Abram, but that Sarai was the one who couldn't have children, with that knowledge, Hagar begins to despise Sarai as weak and unable to have children. Aren't we, aren't we foolish as human beings? We despise people for things that are absolutely out of their control. She looked with contempt on her mistress, is what the passage says, which means Sarai became little or unworthy in Hagar's estimation. Abram didn't realize it, but when he chose the easy path of just giving Sarai what she wanted at this very moment, when he chose to follow in fear rather than lead his family by faith, when he did that, he lit the fuse to a bomb that would blow up in the center of his family. He didn't realize it, but now he's going to find out. Hagar begins to act out her contempt for barren Sarai, and when Sarai realizes what's going on, she's even more hurt than she ever was before, and she comes to Abram now with these words. Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. She despised me. May the Lord judge between you and me. It's at this point that most men respond with something like, Woman, what do you want from me? And from here, the situation deteriorates further as Abram again relinquishes responsibility for his home and washes his hands of the whole matter. In verse 6, he says this, but Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Hagar runs away. The story vividly depicts the hurt and pain that we can unleash in our own families when we doubt the faithfulness of God. When we doubt God and act according to the wisdom of this world, we are inviting pain and regret into our lives. When God's word says, pay the taxes due your government, do we obey the wisdom of God 
Or do we commit fraud and hide our earnings, crying out to God, saying, God, why am I suffering when the police come and arrest you? When God says, don't marry an unbeliever, it will bring great pain and sorrow to your life. Do you rejoice in his wise, fatherly counsel, even when it seems like there is no one to choose from and you have been waiting for ten long years for someone to love? And when God's word says to me, love and disciple your wife and children first, do I trust Jesus to build his church as he's promised? Do I trust him to do that? while I devote specific time and energy to my own family? Do I do that? We are so quick to grow impatient and to doubt God's wisdom and goodness like Abram and Sarai in this account. But the good news is that so often in Scripture and in our own lives, when human faith begins to falter, God lovingly reveals even more of Himself. To his people. Let's see how he does this in verses 7 through 16. Verse 7 The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he, the angel of the Lord, said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Hagar has sinned in this story, and she has been <coughs> sinned against in return. She despised her mistress, and her mistress misused her. It looks like she is going to be another victim of hypocrisy amongst God's people. She has most likely been living in Abram's household for 10 years, hearing about this God, Yahweh. But now she is on the run back to pagan Egypt, back to her homeland. But just before she crosses the border into Egypt, the angel of the Lord appears to her. Earlier this year, we looked at Genesis 1, verse 1, and I suggested to you that when we see this specific phrase, the angel of the Lord, that it is most likely an appearance of the Son of God in the Old Testament. I won't repeat my reasoning here. I spent a lot of time in the past um, arguing for this view. But I am convinced that this is the Son of God speaking as the words of God 
to Hagar. Especially, this seems especially obvious as you see the messenger speaking as if he is God. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring. And then Hagar responds by saying, you are a God of seeing. And she also says, I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar meets the Son of God, the High Priest of Heaven, as we saw in the story about Melchizedek. She meets the High Priest of Heaven in the wilderness, and He delivers promises and hope in the midst of human failure. He promises to multiply her descendants, and He predicts the the, the birth of her son, whom she must call Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears. The high priest of heaven announces to Hagar that the Lord Yahweh has listened to or has heard your affliction. God hears. Hagar responds to this unexpected promise and hope by declaring that this God who's appeared to me, he truly does see. And I have looked upon him who sees me. And from then on, the well, that body of water, would be known as Beer Lahai Roy, which means, get this, the well of the living one who sees me. That's what Beer Lahai Roy means. So when the Israelites were walking around in Canaan after this, and a father points to that well to his son, he doesn't say, look, son, there's Beer Lahai Roy, some name we don't understand. He's literally saying, look, son, there is the well of the living one who sees you and me. That's what it means. And this is the message that Hagar returns with to Abram and Sarai. The angel of the Lord sends her right back to them with this message. The Lord sends an Egyptian, Hagar, back to the family of faith with this message. The living one, he hears and he sees. He is alive and he hears you and he sees you. And these words imply not just that God hears everything and sees everything, but that He is active in the hearing and the seeing. He's not a God that stands far off. No, He is a God that is present with you. That is what this message is about. These are powerful words that rebuke doubt and proclaim the faithfulness of God. He is not a God fashioned by human hands who is deaf, dumb, and lifeless. No. He is not like the moon gods of Ur or like the animal gods of Egypt who cannot hear or see or help in the day of trouble. This is not our God. Yahweh is the living one who hears and sees and who will keep His promises. The prophets of God proclaimed this message throughout God's word. They cried out, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And they said, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The courage comes from hope in God. They also said, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not
faint. This is a description of the one who has complete hope and confidence in God. And God says of himself and of us, those who love him and hope in him, he says, those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. This is a promise from Yahweh, the God who hears and sees and is faithful. Trusting in the Lord and waiting for the Lord describe the person who is looking to God with full assurance that He is the living one who hears, sees, and is acting for the glory of His name and for the good of His people. I pray that God would grant me this daily assurance and that He would do the same for you. What kind of ambassadors, what kind of messengers would we be to this lost world if our daily troubles were bathed in this kind of divine hope in the King who is in control, our King? There is a reason the Apostle Peter challenges the church saying this. He says to us that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks And what are people going to ask us as Christians? What are they going to ask? He says, they're going to ask for a reason for the hope that is in you. This world cannot understand the Christian's hope. This life is filled with pain and trouble that ends with death. And this world cannot understand the genuine hope of the Christian who is thinking, speaking, And acting as if God truly is in control and working for their good at all times and in every place. This does not mean we will not suffer. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the good of knowing him. Of being brought into his love, into the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That we will eternally be with Him in a place that is going to be so glorious and wonderful that this life will seem like a moment and we will not even think about it. We will not even consider the, the suffering or the trials we face in this life. That is what He's talking about. He is saying that our hope can be in Him because He will bring us to the end and all along the way He will be with us and He will give us the grace for every trial we face There is nothing we face where he says we are on our own. He says he is with us and he will not leave us, not even to the end of the age. That's Jesus' departing words to his people. To have this great hope in the God who is working for our good at all times and in every place, if we live in this hope and confidence, then this is evangelism through your life. To live this way is to evangelize the lost simply through your life. This is the power of God to change lives on public display through His people. May God be glorified as we live this week with our hope set on Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank You that You have not left us. And that no matter what we face this past week or what is before us in this week to come, that you say that you are with us and that you give us the grace to honor you and glorify you and have joy even in this life. No matter what comes, you have given us the grace 
the power through your spirit to have this joy and peace and hope. Lord, I pray that we would not cling to the wisdom of this world as we face trouble. Oh Lord, what pain and what regret we bring into our own lives. We know that you are gracious and merciful and will forgive your children. But Lord, I pray that we would reject the wisdom of this age and that we would cling to the wisdom of God which you have written for us. You have given us the testimony of your word and it is life and wisdom. Lord, there is, there is no trouble facing us where you have left us <coughs> to failure. You have given us hope in you for this life and the next. And Lord, I pray that we would live this week in that kind of hope. And as we do that, would your glory and your praises go out into our community. And may we have the joy of seeing others who ask us about the hope that is within us. For your glory. Amen. Amen.